0: Greetings, and welcome to the Boxing Esquire Podcast. Welcome to the initial Boxing Esquire Podcast. I had the great pleasure to speak to one of my good friends and colleagues, uh, main events attorney extraordinaire, Patrick English. Um, We talked about a lot of different things, really went through the history of uh, litigation at main events and uh, some of the great boxing history as well. We talked about the Ali Act. We talked about any number of things. It was a great pleasure and uh, I hope you enjoy.
1: Are going to welcome to the podcast uh, the dean of boxing lawyers. Uh, I'm honored uh, to be speaking to the 2016 uh, New Jersey Boxing Hall of Fame inductee, Pat English. How are you, Pat? I'm honored to be speaking with you. Well, let's start at the very beginning. Uh, so, where is uh, Patrick English from? And uh, uh, you, know, you just uh, go into your, your your
2: background a little bit. Where Where are you from? Well, Patrick English's his office is in Clifton, New Jersey, which is not far across the Hudson River from New York. Um, I graduated from Rutgers Law School in 1978, and by 1982, I was doing boxing law, and have ever since, among many <laughs> others. <things. laughs> Well, I see you went to, uh, you, you skipped the part there, you went to Drake, you went to Drake University? I did, and I don't mean to slight Drake University, <laughs> some, some of the best years of my life in Des Moines, Iowa. Excellent, excellent, excellent. So why Drake? Uh, they can't, they, they uh, recruited me.
1: Okay, but the only thing I know about Drake yeah, is that, that it's in Des Moines and that uh, the, the original rumor about Paul McCartney being dead
2: seems to have originated from there. That's absolutely right. It did originate from a uh, <laughs> a writer uh, for, for the uh, Drake, I think it's called the Times-Delphic, which is the campus newspaper. That's it's absolutely true. Drake is a uh, liberal arts college, liberal arts university, uh, smacked out in the middle of Des Moines, Iowa. <laughs> So, uh, so then you came, you came back to you. You went to Rutgers Law School. Well,
1: yes. what got you interested in practicing law?
2: Well, I was uh, of the era where if you wanted to affect social change, you either became a journalist or a lawyer. Uh, and obviously, that's a grand oversimplification, but uh, but that's that's true. And uh, I had been a journalist. Uh, and I decided to go into law.
1: Interesting. Interesting. So you started out as, as an associate at Lordi Imperial and Dines. Lordi Imperial Lord and Dines. Yes. Okay. Okay, so this I, I, now the Dines, I'm assuming, is Aaron Dines? That's correct. Okay. Late then, Aaron uh, a couple years later, you formed uh, your own firm with, uh, with Aaron Dines, Correct. That's correct. Okay, 1980. Um, now, you know, I, I we've spoken about this before, but uh, I would assume if you start any small practice, you kind of take things that come in the door and, and, and different types of cases. But I was kind of interested to see that one of the earliest cases that you worked on was uh, the Penthouse uh, versus Eastman Kodak case. <laughs> yes. Yeah.
2: Um, we weren't your typical small firm. My partner had a... a- major uh, reputation in the New Jersey bar, and uh, we we had a number of interesting cases. At the time we uh, created the firm, we were doing a lot of education law, and uh, Penthouse was also a client, Uh, mostly with respect to its endeavors in Atlantic City, was trying to build a casino in Atlantic City. Oh, wow. uh, um, I did represent Penthouse in a case against Eastman Kodak when Eastman Kodak was afraid to uh, develop uh, photographs that Bob Guccione had taken.
1: Right, right. It turned out to be uh, a First Amendment
2: case. and um, Cause the, 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 the fear was, the reason that the First Amendment came into it was it was as a result of fear of prosecution. Right. Obviously, the standards of, uh, what was it, 1970? Like around 1980 or so? Yeah, were very different than today. They were very tame photographs compared to today. Right. But Eastman Kodak had, as explained to me by Mr. Guccione himself, had the very best processing facilities, could do the best Mm -hmm. work. So he was very adamant that he wanted the the film processed by Eastman Kodak. And and Eastman Kodak had a policy
1: of you know uh I guess guided by uh their interpretation of whatever Supreme Court case had come out at that point in time that uh, That
2: is exactly right. And it was very hit or miss. Because right. they don't look at every photograph they develop. It's a it's a mechanical process. Did did Penthouse take their, their business elsewhere or did they stay with Eastman Kodak uh both they they had some film developed elsewhere and they uh, also had film developed by Eastman Kodak at the end of the day
1: interesting interesting interesting
2: so um at
1: at some point you you hook up with uh, Dan Duva. when
2: when did you meet uh, Dan I believe it was um in 1982 and uh, it was actually a referral. Many people, we, we graduated both from law school in 1978, and people thought we were classmates, but he had gone to Seton Hall, and I actually went to Rutgers, as we pointed out. So we were not classmates, but uh, he asked me to help on a, on a, on a relatively famous case uh, in boxing field, Duver versus WBA. And in, right, um, let's- Tony Ayella, in the rights of Tony Ayella, and it was uh, the Duva that's mentioned there was Lou Duva, who uh, who, who was Tony Ayella's manager. So it was Duva and Aiella versus WBA. Right. So th-
1: this is a really uh, important case in in in, in the sport. Um, I remember speaking to you about this previously, where um, at the time the ratings. Of uh, the sanctioning bodies were were you know not perfect but at least reasonably accurate. They were uh, better than
2: perhaps they are today. Yeah,
1: yeah. And Ayala at the time uh, was was the number three contender, um, and Davy Moore had won the title and was obligated to to defend against the leading available contender, and yes. and Ayala got passed over for Charlie Weir, who was the number four contender.
2: Yes, that's exactly correct. And we argued that uh, it should not have been passed over. Uh, And ultimately, Judge Herb Stern, the prominent federal district court judge at the time, uh, ruled in favor, but he ruled in favor of Ayala on an argument that had not been fully briefed. And one of the tasks that I had was to keep that ruling intact. It was what's known as a published ruling, meaning, meaning that it was precedential. And we believed, and it was true, that it, it had a huge impact on the rights of boxers. And frankly, because the issue hadn't been properly argued and briefed, there was a substantial possibility that the Third Circuit would overrule and remand that decision, and we wanted it kept, which is what we ultimately succeeded in doing. Right, right, right. Yeah, it's
1: it's interesting because uh, it it affected the sanctioning bodies in that uh, um, their relationships with state commissioners, I would assume, became much different after that, right, because part of the ruling was – that the WBA was kind of a quasi-government body, right? Making yes, because state state action. Action. yeah, they had
2: the members included a substantial number of uh, commissioners and commissions from the United States, much different than today.
1: Right, right, right. So. Um yeah, I would assume all the sanctioning bodies kind of looked at this and, and decided maybe not to use state commissioners <laughs>
2: anymore. Um, uh, but the, the, the due pro, there a couple different aspects to that, and the due process uh, argument stood up really quite a long period of time, even though that relationship changed, and subsequently we did another case which involved uh, Axel Schultz um among others, against the IBF. And the same ruling came down based on a different theory. Uh, it, it had to do with uh, the law of, I don't want to get too technical, but the law of private associations also required a degree of due process. So we developed a different theory with the same outcome right so that so that uh in essence
1: the boxers have a a right to their ranking that 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 was kind of the uh, rights uh, that
2: emanated from their ranking they couldn't right. be skipped over arbitrarily
1: right 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 the 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 decision can' which is, the,
2: which is what well we this, huge. this is huge this is a huge case huge huge case
1: um all right so this was that's nineteen that was around nineteen eighty two right uh, that was yes in that case. Yeah, so from that point on, you you kind of were associated with main events.
2: Yes. Uh, Dan and I formed a fast friendship, and main events really broke into the business through enforcing the rights of the fighters it represented. Uh, And that took a lot of litigation over the years. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. What I think that kind of interests me, like, you know, just, just kind of moving along the timeline, uh, in 1984, obviously main events made some very big moves in, in signing, uh, the stars of the, uh, 1984 Olympic team. Right. Um, the Vander Holyfield and Mark Breland and, um, oh, Whitaker, Whitaker, Melvin yeah. Taylor. I mean, just, you know, legendary fighters. Yes. Um, And initially, those fighters started out fighting on ABC, on network television. Yes. Uh, And pretty much throughout the 80s, they did. Um, But you guys made it, um, you know, eventually they kind of drifted to pay cable. And I guess Evander was the first to do that, right?
2: Uh, uh, I, I wouldn't represent to you that I actually remember who was the first. (laughs) <laughs> but he, he had to deal with Showtime, I think, right? Did you get? A- yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, we 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 did a number of shows, many shows on Showtime. Um, up until the breaking point, there was uh, Evander defeating James Buster Douglas.
1: Right, right, right.
2: Well, he he did you know he he did a couple of his cruiserweight fights. It looks like
1: on Showtime too. Yes, he, he did. I recall. Right? Yes. But uh, it it seemed like by the early... I mean, kind of describe that process. Cause that, that, that gets a lot of play. Like, you know, how boxing went from network TV to pay cable TV. I mean, it seemed like um, by the late 80s, early 90s, you know, when these guys started to, to win world titles and have big fights, that pretty much all of those fights ended up on either Showtime or HBO. Right. Well,
2: essentially... Uh, Cable TV was a developing entity, and my experience is that developing entities, and I think it's going to be true with uh, the Internet as well, gravitate toward boxing to develop a a fan base, an audience. And both Showtime and HBO uh, were in that category then, and they were building their sports departments, uh, and they were both interested in doing uh, high-level boxing. Right, so just it just came
1: down to, in essence, like, you know, what what's the best deal we can get for... Oh, know, that's sports. right. It, I was going to say, it, I was going to add that money had a lot to do with that. <laughs> <laughs> Ultimately, yeah, they started
2: outbidding <laughs> the networks, I would assume, for these fights. By the way, that was basic cable before we ended up uh, pay cable before we ended up with pay per view. Just another development later. Right, I wanted I wanted to get to that because that that came uh,
1: in 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 well very early nineteen nineties. Right, uh, you you uh, um, formed TVKO right with HBO and and Top Rank at the time. That is correct. So what
2: what um, was the what was the
1: gameplay with uh, TVKO?
2: Well, originally it was going to be a. Partnership. Uh, that changed um, really late late in the game, not too much before it, it launched, which was with the Holyfield Foreman fight, which to this day had the highest percentage of viewership. Right. Um, I remember correctly, and I, you probably have the figures, because I, I didn't do any research for this, but it was in excess of 1.25 million. Yeah, I think it, yeah, it, it was a significant percentage
1: of, of, of what homes uh,
2: <laughs> It was developed. a very high percentage of, of addressable, they call it, addressable homes. Right, right. So, I mean, it, the TVKO was in, I mean, it, HBO's
1: pay-per-view uh, telecasts are no longer under the
2: TVKO
1: umbrella, or how
2: long did TVKO last? TVKO lasted quite a long time. In the HBO pay-per-view... That's simply a name change. Uh, it's not a, a different entity. It's just that they decided that at some stage they, they preferred the name HBO Pay-Per-View. Right, right. right PBKO right, was right. was a subsidiary of uh, HBO, and HBO Pay-Per-View was a subsidiary. Right, right. Now, the main events have any participation in that, or was it strictly... Oh, Yeah? To- yeah. <laughs> Uh, And the first fight was, we we had done one one pay-per-view fight earlier, and that was, uh, I think it was Pazienza. Um, We we had been involved in a number of closed-circuit fights. Prior prior to pay-per-view, the way folks went to see fights, that, that weren't on uh, regular television was they would go to a theater and watch the fight and close circuit um, so we had been heavily involved in that mean events had been heavily involved in that more accurately and um, then the pazienza the the fight which was done out of Trump in conjunction with Trump properties in Atlantic City uh, and and uh, then, uh, Holyfield Foreman, which was really the breakthrough with televised pay per view.
1: Right, right, right. That kind of started it all. And-
2: I, I should add that, that, uh, Holyfield Douglas was a pay per view bout too. Um, which, that was an interesting situation because that came as a result of a purse bid. There was litigation over that. We had to enforce Evander's rights uh, against many people. Interestingly, not against uh, Douglas. Douglas was happy to fight Evander, um, and it resulted from a purse bid. Uh, Steve Wynn, Wynn Properties, the Golden Nugget, at the time, a bid, uh, a very large, 24 million, if I remember correctly. Right. Uh, uh, they they did a pay per view. That was in conjunction with Showtime, but I'm not sure how it was branded. Well, yeah, there was a whole lot of stuff that went on there,
1: right? Because Evander was the mandatory, and, you know, Douglas upsets the apple cart. He was the mandatory for Mike Tyson, I should say. Right, and then the
2: WBC attempted to, I would use the term, steal the title back from (laughs) Douglas, and we had to defend that situation um, against the WBC. There was court proceedings and arbitrations that went on for quite a long period of time. But the bottom line on it is that Evander got the right to defend his title against George Foreman, um, and it was a massive success.
1: absolutely. Absolutely.
2: So then, um,
1: well, actually, with with Holyfield and Foreman, um, was there not litigation um, surrounding the Vander defending against mandatories and so on? Wasn't there litigation with the
2: second? Yes, there was. And, and that had to do with this, what I just mentioned. If they couldn't take the title away from Tyson, they next wanted to fight Tyson. Um, and as part of that litigation, we endeavored to show... The argument was that that, that uh, Tyson had been robbed, which was not true. And we had to defend the... the, the, the it wasn't robbed, and we had... Amazing support from many, many people who came in and testified. That whole situation involving James Buster Douglas is a, a very sad chapter. That one of the best referees in the world was the referee for that fight, and he never refereed a fight after. Oh, Moran, right? I think it was Moran. That's correct. And yeah. uh, they. Put tremendous pressure on him to say that he had made a mistake, but he refused. But it got very ugly, and he never refereed another fight. Wow! Wow! That's uh, Octavio Martinez. Awesome. There's a there's an unsung hero in boxing.
1: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. You don't you don't hear much about uh, obviously you don't hear much about him
2: because he hasn't he hasn't worked any big fights. That's horrible yeah and he was um, event, and uh you know people didn't know the situation
1: right well uh, another thing came out of that uh that litigation as well and that uh did that not set up the uh, the rotation system for that many stories?
2: something that i've been uh recently uh fighting over out of that litigation the uh ratings organizations Uh, partially as a result of some court orders that we got, and partially, depending on the organization, some some very voluntarily, set up a rotation system, which meant that if you had more than one belt, which Evander had three, you obviously couldn't fulfill each mandatory at the same time. And a rotation was set up where the oldest mandatory would come and then the next oldest Etc. Uh, and it's very important for unified title holders. And when I, the reason I say that I I just had that was I'm representing Anthony Joshua, and the WBA rather than uh, Anthony Joshua fighting his IBF mandatory, which was next in line, the WBA for a while took the position that uh, he should fight their mandatory, who was. Mr. Ortiz, uh, I had to very forcibly remind them of the rotation system.
1: Wow, and and now we see uh, Ortiz is kind of...
2: uh... (laughs) Yeah, a lot of things change very quickly in boxing because it was supposed to be Pula (laughs) versus uh, uh, Anthony, and then uh, both he and... uh, of uh, both he and Ortiz uh, got out of the picture pretty quickly.
1: yeah, what's the That's situation with that now with the WBA? Are they going to the next available guy
2: or, or is I don't Ortiz know still in play? I just got a notice from the WBA today they've suspended uh, Ortiz for six months um, and they're requiring him to uh, undergo a testing program. And I don't know ultimately what they're going to do, but they certainly vacated the directive with respect to Ortiz.
1: Right. I think I remember this coming up with Glaskov as well, right? With uh, Tyson Fury.
2: Uh, it comes up regularly.
1: <laughs> Absolutely.
2: Well, let's, all right,
1: let's let's kind of follow, let's go back to the timeline here. Um, with Holyfield successfully defended against Foreman, and then there was a pretty big fight set up between one of Andrew Holyfield and one of Mike Tyson for November of 1991. What's your recollection of uh There was something the in me, be- that-
2: and, and you asked me a question earlier, so I'm going to come back to it. You asked yeah, if there was yeah. a participation. There was. Uh, it was total participation on that fight. It was a total percentage deal out uh, of Foreman. But the next fight was against Larry Holmes, Right, right. And on that fight HBO bought out uh our interest and H- huh. HBO lost a lot of money.
1: <laughs> Overpaid. <laughs> so did they buy did they did they buy it out just for that fight or just or, or like you know going That was
2: it. the only fight where they gave that type of a guarantee.
1: Hm. Mm. Mm.
2: Actually they gave a guarantee it was high. We said great and they lost money.
1: <laughs> you know, yeah. not for nothing, but you outwitted HBO on that one, so.
2: I don't know that we outwitted them. We just had the good sense to say yes. <laughs> All right, so... That's uh, happened a lot over the years in various contexts, yeah. believe it or not.
1: <laughs> Sometimes it just helps to make the deal.
2: Um so, yeah,
1: so, so talk to me about Holy, the initial Holy Keel Tyson South uh, that was scheduled for uh, November 8,
2: 1991. Well, obviously, this is something I'll never forget. Uh, the Negotiations were difficult. We were negotiating with Don King. And, Don King uh, was difficult? He could be difficult. And I remember <laughs> we met. Ultimately, we had a meeting at the Waldorf Astoria in the uh, suite of Jose Suleiman. And it was a difficult meeting, and then uh, Sterling McPherson came in and quite bluntly told Don that he wanted Don to make, that Ted Tyson wanted Don to make the deal. Uh, And we made the deal uh, at the direction of Mike Tyson to Don. By the time we got to the parking garage, the cell phones were ringing. Uh, no well press uh, it had leaked out that fast that the deal had been made Wow so uh, if this was a this was huge uh, among other things uh seven eleven was a sponsor and they had coffee cups printed tyson uh, holyfield tyson and the date and what have you. And uh, I was in my office one evening, and I get a call from Kathy, Kathy Duva, Dan's wife. Right. And uh, she says, we got a call from Don King on our answering machine. It it sounded very important, but Dan's not available. What do you think we should do? So I said, well, let's give him a call. And that's when he said that Tyson had hurt his rib. Right. Uh, And all of the work that we had done at that time went by the wayside. Fight could not take place. Ultimately Tyson went to prison. Right, 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 right.
1: Yeah, it's funny 'cause I was at uh I was a paralegal at Sidley and Austin back then and that's you know, and they represented Mike and Don. So I remember there was a lot of excitement about uh that fight coming up and uh <laughs> And then yeah, I remember there were, there were hats printed up at the time, and I'm so mad I didn't uh, grab one. <laughs> yeah. Wait to collect it, I don't know, I'm sure.
2: Those to show how risky the promotion business is. It, well, there was $10 million that had been spent on that promotion mm. before it collapsed, Roughly. Uh-huh. Now there was insurance, and we did get a, a, a pretty fair amount of insurance back, but there was still a lot of money out the door that it, it wasn't covered.
1: Wow, unbelievable!
2: To its credit, I, I, I want to say this: HBO uh, sort of stood up on that, and uh, the next fight turned out. <laughs> this is this is another example. We decided to put a Vander Holyfield Uh, in Atlanta, his hometown. Ultimately, the fight was against Burt Cooper. But Burt Cooper was actually the third opponent. It was supposed to be a guy named Damiani. He He hurt himself. I forget who the second one was. He lasted about two days. He hurt himself, and Burt Cooper was the uh, third choice. Burt Cooper had been coming off, if I remember correctly... A tremendous fight against uh, uh, Moore, Michael Moore.
1: Yeah, it was a war. <laughs> and his fight with Evander was quite the war as well. It was. what I recall, it was pretty scary for you guys, I'm sure, when you got hit with that uh, uppercut.
2: It was one of the few times that I ever saw a, a referee that I admired greatly. A Mills Lane, uh, make a mistake. Um Cooper hit Holyfield as hard as I've ever seen. Holyfield, his eyes went back in his head and his knees buckled, and everyone thought he was going down. Uh, Mills turned to point to the corner to send Cooper to the neutral corner and started counting while his back was turned, assuming that Evander had gone to the ground. Uh, well, when he turned around, he was already in the count, but Evander never went down. Evander <laughs> had an amazing ability to, uh, to to get clear-headed very quickly.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
2: Absolutely. And uh, he, he did a standing eight count, which was not proper, but it was really because he thought, not because he made a mistake initially. The mistake was in thinking Evander was going to go down, but... There were fifty thousand other people in the stadium that thought the same thing. So,
1: right. Well, actually, you know, it's probably a, a big break for <laughs> uh, uh I
2: don't think didn't so. Didn't allow Cooper to, to follow that shot up while he was uh, done. Yeah, possibly. Yeah. I hadn't looked at it that way because he was clear-headed. By the time that was, in, and he had this funny look on his face, like, "Why are you counting?" <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, what a warrior. Unbelievable, Evander. So, uh, well, going beyond that fight, then you had the the, the three fight series with uh, Riddick Bowe. Yeah. Uh, what are you, what's, your, what's your recollection of, uh, of of those encounters? I guess it was what, November '92, November
2: '93, and then November '95. They were epic, obviously. Um, Holyfield bow one was an absolute war. Uh, obviously, Evander. Did not win that, but it was one of the most marvelous fights you're ever going to see with ebb and flow. We did the rematch, and uh, the rematch was the so-called fan man uh, fight. Uh, I happened to be sitting in the exact line of sight where I could see him coming. (laughs) Uh, This was at an open stadium behind Caesars.
1: Okay. Right,
2: and there was picture stadium seating, but with a gap where two two ends didn't join. It was that, through that gap that that the fan man came, and there was a blimp, uh, the Goodyear blimp, I guess it was, was taking uh, aerial photos, and this guy's coming, and coming, and coming, and you could see him because it's just a slow uh thing that he the contraction that he was in and you sort of thought well the guy's going to pull up and at some point you say oh my god this is he's not pulling up <laughs> <laughs> so he hit the uh his, his hang glider contraption hit the uh, lights hung up in the lights and he was sort of half on and half off the ring eventually he goes off the ring into uh more or less the boat corner, where he is beaten within an inch of his life (laughs) by people sitting there. It was cold that night, and so we all went and got towels uh, to keep Evander warm, and I suspect the other side did as well for their guy, uh, while they tried to get the uh, parachute-type material off of the lights. But after a few minutes... And, you know, maybe fifteen minutes or maybe less. Uh, the fight resumed, and Evander went
1: one. Yeah, yeah, that was that was uh, that was pretty amazing. I I I don't know what the odds were on that fight, but I don't think many people, after seeing that first fight, where Bo just seemed a little too big, a little too young. Uh, I don't think anyone pictured Evander pulling that off in the rematch. Pretty, uh, again, just an amazing fighter. We had a holy field.
2: There's one thing that people don't completely understand. Given the type of fighters that these were, it is much easier to win a title than to keep a title for various and sundry reasons. Um, The distractions that come with holding a major title at that level in those days were huge. Now, Vander was one of the most focused athletes I've ever met so nothing bothered him in the ring but uh, it is a truism that for, for that level of athlete the, tra- the, the distractions become huge absolutely then there, there was the third fight where unbeknownst to us Vander had had the flu didn't tell us shame on him and in one of the early rounds, he cracked Bo. Bo went down hard, but he beat the count and uh, got up. And we couldn't understand why Evander wasn't following up. But Evander uh, was had been ill, and, and they just didn't have the stamina to finish him.
1: Yeah, I remember that he was. Uh, he got fatigued really quickly, which wasn't like Evander for sure. Yeah. So uh, I guess. At some point, and you may have had these guys at the same time, but you guys signed Lennox Lewis in, in the mid-'90s, right? How did that come about? Well, uh,
2: it's, it's pretty simple. Uh, he was just a, a, a great prospect. We had a number of the major heavyweights, uh, he liked the way they per- were promoted, and uh, ultimately we signed him in conjunction with some folks in England. The, the the folks in England, with the exception of Frank Maloney, the the cast of characters switched over time, but we didn't.
1: Right, right. It was Panos, right? You had Panos
2: and Panos. It was right? actually someone else first. And Panos was known as a liquidator, which is a person who buys things out of bankruptcy and... and uh, it's like a bankruptcy trustee in the United States and he actually acquired the contract to Lennox through a bankruptcy of someone else. So that was that was like October ninety five
1: and shortly after that, uh, Dan Duva passed away. Um in ninety six yes, ninety six, right, right, in early ninety six. And at that time I guess Dino kind of assumed uh, control or, or was acting as a... Well, here's the way
2: it worked out. When Dan learned that he had uh, brain cancer, he set up a uh, board of directors, of which I was one. And um, Dino became the... uh, what effectively was the chief operating officer. Dan uh, was... Involved up until he couldn't be anymore, so it was a gradual uh, transition in, in terms of Dan's involvement, and ultimately he, he could not be involved anymore, and then subsequently passed away. At some point, uh, well, you know, it was there,
1: and then and then Gary Shaw came in, right around was it? 99? Oh, Kathy was the chairman of the board. Okay, Okay.
2: And uh, Dino was, I don't remember the title, but he was effectively the chief operating officer. Uh, and then um, there were some issues that I'd prefer not to go into uh, causing the departure of uh, Dino. Uh, and Gary was, was, uh, was hired, I believe his title was COO. Right, right.
1: So at this point, at a certain point, too, so Lennox, you got into some litigation with Lennox and the WBC, correct? Like it was Maybe early 96 as well?
2: Uh, I'm trying to remember. We were constantly in litigation with the WBC. <laughs> I think this is so, kind of enforced mandatory, I think. Yes, was that was another time when we were seeking uh, to enforce the mandatory. Uh, by that time, well, there's a lot in between. We've skipped over. Uh, but Tyson had gotten out of jail and was the title holder, if that's the particular litigation you're talking about. Uh, Tyson, right, I think it, started, it started before Tyson
1: even fought Bruno, I think, but yeah.
2: Uh, Tyson did not want to fight uh, Lennox as we know now, for good cause. Or at least Don King didn't want him to fight Lennox. Right. And we did institute litigation.
1: Right. And, then, and eventually that turned out that you settled it out, right?
2: Well, it, yeah. We, we got a favorable ruling, and then uh, there were negotiations to avoid an appeal, and we did settle it, yes. Uh, with quite a large sum of money coming to the Lennox Lewis side.
1: Right, right, right. And so um, Lennox eventually, I think what Tyson eventually vacates the title and then Lennox fights Oliver McCall in that uh, infamous uh, rematch of theirs. <laughs> well, it was, a, Yeah, well,
2: there was a Razor Rudd fight before then. Right, right, that's right. Hey, the, the way that worked was that that was not a title fight at the time that it uh, was held. But he, if Tyson were to vacate the title, it would become a title fight. When it's it right. obviously won. Right. Right.
1: Um, so that, that's, you know.
2: The, so he, now you've got Oliver McCall. He He got knocked down and counted out. He was on his feet at the time of the... Now, if he was stopped and he did ultimately do a rematch with Oliver McCall and beat Oliver McCall. Right, right. That was Uh a... Oh, I'm trying to remember the sequence here. Uh, Oliver McCall had serious issues, to say the least. And it turned out that Oliver McCall was not in condition to fight. Uh, One of the things that I must condemn Don King. One of the worst things I've ever seen was that uh, he put Oliver McCall in the ring when Oliver McCall was psychotic, literally psychotic. Oliver McCall at the time believed that men in red cars were monitoring his, his movements and that they had that there were radio transmitters that had been implanted in his toes. I swear to God, this is true. <laughs> radio transmitters that had been implanted in his toes. Uh, wow. We didn't know that, obviously, at the time of the fight, but that is the fight where Oliver McCall broke down during the fight and simply started to cry.
1: Mm, yeah. Yeah, that was that was probably one of the most bizarre Boxing matches I've ever seen. I mean, that was that was really painful to watch. You just didn't know what was going to happen. You know, I mean, obviously, one guy wanted to fight, and one guy just did not want to be there, and it was just a very bad situation. Absolutely, absolutely. So this was uh, this kind of led to a really busy time. I mean, I was looking like ninety nine and two thousand must have been absolutely nuts, period. You. <laughs> you had, I mean, the Ali act. Um, got got enacted. I know you were very involved in that. In uh, midway through 2000, you want to talk a little bit about your involvement uh, with the Ali Act.
2: Well, I was used by the, the the main sponsor for the Ali Act was John McCain. Right. And I had testified both in favor of the Professional Boxing Health and Safety Act, which was the predecessor of the Ali Act. And before McCain's committee on the uh, OLLI Act, and the committee staff heavily relied upon me as an expert uh, in, the, in the actual drafting of the act. What I say is the good parts are mine, but the bad parts I have nothing to do with. <laughs> I leave it to the people to decide which are which
1: right 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 i mean i will come back to that a little bit if, if i can a little later uh, the litigation you've you uh, you've, you've uh, prosecuted uh, involving the act because that's interesting, but at the same time there you know the i b f uh trial was going on uh, well that was one of the
2: the spurs to the act right uh unfortunately the i b f had fallen into a very deep state of corruption. Um, We had had litigation involving Michael Moore, and they had tried, in our opinion, to take advantage of Michael Moore. And this was really when people began to use computers in in a useful way. And in checking out certain aspects of the IVF, it turned out that there was... uh, shell companies, had, which had been set up on the West Coast. Same name, and that money was being uh, sh- put into the shell companies rather than the regular IVF, oh. which is, I represent public agencies at times, and it's a pretty well-known scam where somebody submits an invoice from a uh, reputable company and they just change the name a little bit and it doesn't get caught and then they have a, a a company of a similar name well that's what Bobby Lee was doing Bobby Lee and others uh and that led to some investigation regarding the bribery on rankings uh, ultimately the FBI did a uh, thing uh they they taped a meeting that he, uh, Bob Lee had with Doug Beavers, uh, splitting up money, bribery money, and Bob Lee was indicted and ultimately convicted of money laundering. Uh, the the Moore case from which it emanated uh, was before a federal district court judge named John Bissell, who was a major uh, sports figure himself. He was involved in uh, officiating. He was. In private life, he he was a a, a a sports official. And he heard the testimony. He heard what was going on, and he's the one who actually called in the FBI. Oh, wow. Uh, the court reporter came up to me and said, see those guys in the suits in the back of the room? And I said, yeah. He says, well, they're the FBI. That Judge Bissell called him in. Wow. <laughs> So, what what impact do you think that
1: had on uh,
2: sanctioning bodies and the sport in general? I think I think they put the fear of God into them for a while. Everybody for a while, you it. think? I said yeah. for a while. Yes, I chose my words carefully. I will tell you that right now, the IBF is as straight an organization as as can be. So, with respect to the IBF, while I don't always agree with some of their rulings, they're straight. The, 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 some of their rules are overly strict, I think, but they're very straight. Um, so with respect to the IBF, that's been cleaned up. Uh, I think there are some issues with at least one of the other organizations, and we'll see how that works out. I guess, you, and also around that time,
1: you were involved with the, the WBA, um, and, and Lennox Lewis and John Ruiz and, and Michael Grant. And uh, you want to talk a little bit about that litigation?
2: Well, <laughs> I've been involved in so much litigation. Over I'm the, say, uh, I'm <laughs> looking at this, I'm like... And so much litigation with the WBA.
1: <laughs>
2: uh, when you're dealing with that level, and Anthony Joshua is learning this now too, when you, when you, it's it, heavyweight boxing when you're dealing with not a subsidiary champion or somebody who holds the title for 15 minutes, but of the real heavyweight stars, it's very complicated because everybody wants a piece of the action. Um, I remember one of the things that the WBA used to do, and I think it's in connection with what you're talking about. They used to try, they used to do process you to death. Uh, and I remember a hearing that was held in Pennsylvania. Jimmy Binn's Pennsylvania attorney was representing the IBF, uh, excuse me, the WBA. And, uh, Alberto Mendoza Sr. participated by speakerphone through the major hotel in, uh, Philadelphia. Alberto was actually in the room upstairs. He didn't want to come down because he was afraid he was going to be served. So he pretended he was in Venezuela. And uh, Stoney was there, uh, Ruiz's manager at the time. He was uh, out of control. I mean, really out of control. He had uh, impulse control problems is a fair way of putting it. And uh, I was afraid there was going to be real violence.
1: But somehow we managed to escape it. Ultimately, they stripped Lennox of the title, right? Uh, WBA.
2: I thought that Lennox just gave it up. This was toward the end of Lennox's career. I think that Lennox just gave it up.
1: Right, right. Certainly
2: didn't need it. Yeah, I mean, you
1: know, I guess... Uh... At some
2: point, the titles become irrelevant except for bragging rights. Right. You know, it was irrelevant, for instance, for Pernell Whitaker at certain stages of his career. Uh, it was true for, for Lennox. It, it was true for, for others as well. Uh, Evander always... Felt differently on that. Well, I would advise a fighter at that level: if you can keep the titles, it's the best thing to do. But if it's totally irrational, uh, then forget it. Right, it's not worth it if you're at that level, which very few fighters are. But, uh, my thing- you say it didn't go too well? You are the master of understatement. That was one of the most bizarre things I have ever seen in my life, including the fan man. Um, I, uh, we were involved at that point, Lennox and Main Event, with with litigation against uh, Pano Ciliatus, his former... Whatever he was, promoter, manager, whatever he was, who had actually was found to have stolen money from both Lennox and main events, uh, and on the way into the press conference, I, one of the few times I actually took a town car, so I could work on a a brief that was due uh, the following day. Uh, But in any case, we got there, and Tyson was out of control and ultimately uh, caused a a fight, and he he approached Lennox in a threatening way, and Lennox clocked him. Uh, Tyson went down, grabbed Lennox's legs, and took a big bite out of it. Uh, Lennox, there was a melee, uh, there were camps involved. The, Lennox exited the area, and Tyson went on a rant, the likes of which you will never hear again. Uh, a, a obscene rant against members of the press, uh, it, it, which you can find on YouTube somewhere. But to say that it was an obscene rant... Is an understatement. Okay, <laughs> I was going to say I was—I
1: was saying that I, I was sitting with Cassandra Henderson from ESPN, and um, I thought there was no security between the two—the two, the two fighters—and I'm just like this, you know. Tyson had been acting so bizarre in uh, the fights leading up to that that uh, I knew something was going to happen, and, and sure enough, it did. And and uh, credit to Lennox for. Um, Continuing on and agreeing to fight, Mike. After I heard that there was like a quarter, like a, like a chunk of his leg the size of a quarter. Yeah, I and mean, it was out. a
2: little large. Actually, it was larger than that. Um, uh-huh. he, he uh, received some some money for for that, but the way okay. that really worked okay. is we were in a contract. It didn't specify the site, and our attitude was we're not going to help you get licensed. But if you can get licensed, we'll fulfill the contract. Uh, Tyson went to a number of places. He was turned down in Nevada. He was turned down by the governor in New Jersey. There were efforts to put the fight in uh, Washington, D.C., which... I killed because folks had solicited a bribe in connection with that. Not people associated with Tyson, but people associated with D.C. And um, mm. and we weren't going to participate in that. And ultimately, uh, he got licensed in and we put the fight in Nashville, Tennessee. Well,
1: wow. I
2: didn't know that. I didn't know the backstory of that. That's that's wild. And it was
1: that's quite crazy. a
2: backstory. Hmm. It was a, uh, quite an overt attempt to uh, to get a shakedown. And our attitude was, look, Lennox held the titles. It was a lot of money. Was, Everybody's was going to make a lot of money, but Lennox wasn't poor. So the onus was on on Tyson. I remember there were, there were issues with him taking medication and,
1: and security, and that, had, that whole event had to be just complete madness.
2: It was complex. The, he, <laughs> he, was a, he, he did take medication. It was obvious that they thought we were going to object to that, but we didn't because it was the best thing for him. Um, there's a lot of rumors. They're very ugly about what people around Mike Tyson did, with respect to that medication, that were bad for Tyson, which I personally believe but I wasn't there, so they're just rumors. That he would typically be taken off the medication before fights, which was a bad thing. But one of the more interesting things is we had a major battle at ringside. Uh, Panama Lewis came to the fight and was in the locker room of uh, Tyson. The rumor was that Panama Lewis would give an amphetamine-type substance to Tyson right before he fights. We demanded that the uh, drug test be taken after the fight. They wanted it before the fight. Our belief was that that was so that they could um, give him the substance uh, in between the drug test and the fight. And we had quite a battle, literally at ringside, over that, just immediately before the fight. Now, ultimately, we prevailed. Um, I won't go through the details, but it was ugly. And um, uh, Lennox did what he did, which was to take out Tyson.
1: Right, right.
2: Let me go back to Evander Holyfield and Tyson. Um, when Tyson was more formidable even than when he fought Lennox... One thing we always knew was that by virtue of who they were and their relative athletic stature, we always knew, meaning that folks over at main events, knew that Evander would defeat Mike Tyson. It, it, mm. There was an incident at the uh, Olympic training camp where Tyson tried to intimidate a number of boxers and it didn't work with um, Evander back then and Tyson, who was a very good fighter, certainly knows the game, but he relied as much on intimidation as on skill. And he did not like people who fought back against him. He did not like to be in that position. And one thing that that uh, was obviously true, was that there was no way that Evander wasn't going to fight back. So we always believed that Evander would beat Mike Tyson. And the same with Lennox Lewis. Okay, with with Evander, um, you guys had him up through the Ches fight, right? We had him. We were involved with him. I was involved with him through both Tyson fights. Okay, okay. Now, main events. Still had a contract with him for the Tyson 1 fight, but in order to get that fight, um, King demanded uh, the rights to Tyson, and we weren't going to stand in the way of Evander fighting that fight. That was the fight that, that he always wanted through his entire career. So, but I was involved with Evander right through the second Tyson fight, personally. Okay. okay. Yeah, I'm still friendly with him today.
1: Right. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Great guy. Well, now he's got his own uh, promotional company. Right. It so, yeah, goes full circle. <laughs> so, all right. So now we're you know we're into 2002 with Lennox and Tyson. Um pretty good fight theory started that year. Uh, Arturo Gatti and Mickey Ward, what's your recollection of those fights?
2: <laughs> there are fights that you go to not expecting to see what you saw. And I can think of two fights really uh, very quickly. Gaddy Ward was one of them. I was just sitting there being a spectator uh, at the fight. And it was obvious that it was an epic fight. And um, it was, you know, it was literally a historic fight in in, in, in the boxing realm. And so you appreciated what you were seeing. The same feeling I had when George Foreman knocked out Michael Moore. I had the exact same feeling. You, You were seeing something that was historic. Three absolutely great fights. Um,
1: and, well, I want to get back to the Ali the Ali Act. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, you guys had signed a, a lot of great fighters from the 2000 Olympic team mm-hmm. and Jeff Lacey was one of them and then at a certain point Jeff wanted to leave and there was litigation and it involved the Ali Act. Can you talk about uh, that case?
2: Uh, I'll talk about the case. The Ali Act uh, required it requires today disclosures to the fighter uh, of income, so that the fighter can negotiate. Is it actually is a dumb provision in the sense that uh, you don't have to disclose income to the fighter until the night of the fight. After the, fight, the contract's already negotiated. But it does allow the fighter to negotiate his next fight, at least with the knowledge as to what the income was for his last fight. The issue in the Lacey case was uh, whether giving the uh, Muhammad Ali Act statement, that's the form on which the disclosure's made, to the manager was sufficient. Uh, There had been guidance from the Association of Boxing Commissions and the people that had been involved in drafting the act, and I'm not talking about myself. I'm talking about staff members from Congress, that giving it to the manager who was the agent um, of the fighter was the way to go on that, and that's what main events did. Um, It was subsequently litigated, and the district court judge held that it that was not sufficient, that it had to be uh, signed off on by the fighter itself. The district court judge was a terrific guy uh, named Debovoise, wonderful guy I knew him well. They made the wrong call uh, because the way that it, 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 it works is useless because it's the manager that negotiates the contracts. If you stick a piece of paper in front of a fighter at a weigh-in, which is now typically the way it's done, they don't look at it, they scribble their name on it, and they have no idea what's in it. Um, in that particular, the Lacey case, uh, there was never uh, any finding that uh, Jeff Lacey, and he didn't suffered any damages. There were a couple things going on then. Uh, one was, there were Lacey wanted to leave main events, and uh, so did Zap Judah at the same time. Uh, and we were litigating with Zap Judah. Uh, that was after the death, substantially after the death of uh, Adam. Uh, we won the Zap the Judah case, uh, which was very important. Uh, and ultimately, we simply just let Lacey go. So going forward from there, you guys happened
1: to uh, stumble across a uh, pretty good Polish uh, light heavyweight cruiserweight by the name of Thomas Adamek. Well, I had independently represented
2: uh for quite a period of time. Uh, he had been signed with Don King, and... He wasn't being treated correctly. And I was retained by his manager, who I knew well, uh, Ziggy Rozalski, and uh, really tried to get Don King to toe the line in terms of honoring contracts. Uh, so I had represented personally Tomas Ademek for quite, quite a long period of time. By the time he ever looked in the direction of main events. Don uh, sold the rights to uh, Adamic to a Polish company, uh, the promotional rights, which promptly went bankrupt, at which point Tomas was a free agent. We uh, Ziggy had, had, had Galata with main events mm. uh, and uh, wanted... Uh, made events to promote Tomas Edemic, and obviously I like that idea since I, I, I'm very friendly with Tomas. And uh, Kathy agreed to do so. And that's how that came about. And Tomas found a very good home in the Carney Newark area. This was great. Huge promotions at uh, Prudential Center, in addition to many huge promotions in uh, uh, in Poland. Has a huge, huge fan base in this area. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: Well, uh, and uh, talk to me about how you guys uh, came
2: upon Sergey Kovalev. Well, Sergey, here's what I remember um, Don Turner and Agus Clemens came to a Tomas fight. fight. Well, we've known Don Turner since I made Little Green Apples. He was co trainer of. Of Vander and other fighters. One of the most wonderful guys there is uh, in boxing. He's just a, a wonderful person. And he touted Main Events to Aegis. Uh, uh, it took a while, but ultimately we signed, the Main Events signed Sergei Kovalev, and the rest is history. It was through Don Turner as much as anything else.
1: I gotcha. I gotcha. So, uh now with Sergey, Um there was obviously a once once he started dominating the division, there was a, a showdown that looked like it was imminent with Adonis Stevenson. Yes. But <laughs>
2: but somehow, some way that fight didn't get made. Uh you wanna Well, about? it got made and they backed out. It was made. Right. There were there was an exchange of uh, there was an exchange of a deal memo and acceptance, which to a lawyer means contract. Mm-hmm. Uh, the uh, I don't, uh, uh, well, what's the name of the promotion company that promotes him? Not Heyman, although that's really who promotes him. Um Yvonne Michel's company. Yvonne Michelle uh, later claimed that. He couldn't control Adonis Stevenson, which is different than what the representations were during the negotiations. And in any case, uh, he backed out. There was major litigation over that. And then um, a bigger fight came to Sergey, which was the Hopkins fight. So it sort of made the litigation with uh, Madonna Stevenson and his promoter secondary because, frankly, Sergei made more money fighting Hopkins.
1: Right, right. So I guess, you know, it's tricky to, to ask you this question, but uh, your impressions of the, the PBC and the moves they've made and the antitrust suits and just the overall effects on boxing the last couple of years.
2: Well, it's not—it's not a tricky question. Uh, <laughs> Just how, uh, how much of it you wanted to answer? No, I, don't, I, don't, I am not a fan of the PBC. <laughs> uh, I believe that, that there's a, there's a couple of different things. First of all, they've managed their money incredibly poorly. We all know that they've blown through roughly four hundred and fifty million dollars, maybe more. It's unbelievable to watch that type of money flow out the door. Uh, it's, it's obvious that they haven't been able to support their dreams. They've cut back tremendously. So their impact today is pretty much gone. What they did temporarily was to disrupt the market. They completely ignored there's a a firewall between manager and promoter in the Muhammad Ali act They completely violated that. Um, There are those who say, well, maybe they did, but it worked to the benefit of the boxers. And that may be true for some boxers who took advantage of, uh, legitimately took advantage of the massive amount of money that was flowing out the door, but Less known, or there are other boxers who were hurt. Um, I've had contacts with a number of boxers that are not enchanted with the management of Heyman. I don't know him personally. I met him many years ago. Um, if I were giving him objective advice, I would have said what Kathy publicly said was that the model will work, Kathy Duva, and time has shown that to be true.
1: Yeah, I guess um, I, I listened to an interview with Kathy a couple weeks ago, and uh, she she stated what I thought was a really interesting concern, and I guess, you know, taking it to the present day now and, and uh, talking about the state of the game, just that, you know, you've got Aram now with with an exclusive deal on ESPN. Um, the PBC will, you know, who knows what's going to happen with them, but you're, you would assume they're looking for an exclusive deal with a network
2: as well. Well, I think we all know what's going to happen with them. I, I disagree with that. They are unsuccessful, and they will not turn that around. You don't see them getting a TV deal with someone? Well, they had TV deals, didn't they? They had TV deals with half of the world, <laughs> but it didn't work out for anyone. They put on bad shows uh, with not bad ratings, and it didn't work out. What was right. particularly aggravating was, as you recall, Main Events had a very good series with NBC, which developed a number of folks including Tomas and, and, and Sergei was on, I think, once, uh, and others. Uh, and they were good shows. And then, uh, essentially, PBC came in with a time buy, which means they bought the time. And they killed that market and put on bad shows. Now, subsequently, NBC severed that re- arrangement. Right, it, right. As did ESPN, and as did others, but... In the meantime, it disrupted the market.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, you know, I, I've always wondered why, and, and, and I'm sure you can could, you could address this, but, um, you know, that, uh, Joe DeGuardi and a number of promoters, you know, I guess when Golden Boy and Al Heyman seem to be cornering the market on HBO, put together that promoters association. Mm mm-hmm. um, now I've always wondered why the promoters haven't gotten together and, and formed a league. I mean, you look at um, the NFL and, and other leagues where you know each franchise. You know, obviously the you know the value of those franchises has gone up exponentially because they banded together and, and did a TV deal, and the TV deals have gotten bigger and bigger, and you know it's benefited all of the teams. Um, what I mean, I know it's personalities, but yeah, if you could just address. What, uh, what the impediment
2: oh, of... That's uh, pretty
1: simple. Okay. Uh,
2: companies like Main Events, and Main Events is really noted for this, and there's some others out there too, they'll do business with all of the people you've mentioned. And they regularly do. Um, the fight that is taking place on... Uh, November 25th between Sergey and Shabransky. Uh There's a Golden Boy undercard uh, fight of some significance. Uh, Shabransky's with Golden Boy, uh, and, and, then, and then there's uh, other promoters also have folks on the card. So, some promoters are very eager, in the appropriate circumstances, to do business with with they're competitors, and some aren't. Um, Al Heyman is a bit, very good example of that. His fighters, by and large, don't fight outside the PBC umbrella. Um, in terms of forming a league... Well, let's talk about the Promoters Association. Joe DeGuardia is a, a good uh, friend of mine, I think, and I think he would say the same. I didn't agree with what it, the way it was structured. Uh, I thought you got to be careful about antitrust, and then, frankly, it, it didn't have the guts to do, and I told him, you stand up in the following areas, and I'll recommend to Kathy that main events join. If you're too namby tamby. To stand up in those areas, why bother? Um, with res- that's different than a league. With respect to a league, you may have all kinds of antitrust issues. If you're talking about a league that does rankings as well as um, just has have fighters fight each other, well, there's, that that would violate the Muhammad Ali Act. You can't have a UFC or a Bellator-type situation where they have their own championships.
1: Well, if, if, if you had the league, but you used, like, say, uh, uh, you know, a neutral media-type ratings and, and, and they weren't associated with the the promoters or the league, kind of like the that NCAA
2: That happens now. Right. I don't, um, you know, there's... If the belt, it's the person that's meaningful, but if the belt is around the waist of a Lennox Lewis or an Evander Holyfield, uh, fine. Then you do business with whoever will actually garner, as an opponent, the best revenue. That's the whole idea. Main events did a lot of fights with uh, top rank fighters uh in heavyweight division um and I could go through a lot of different scenarios but there's never been oh if Don King for that matter talk about deadly enemies but we did a lot <laughs> of business with Don King and vice versa because it was the biggest set of fights now that isn't true for all promoters but that's up to them uh, you'd have to ask them why they don't want it. You don't need a league. What you need is the best fighters fighting the best and a decent relationship. You don't have to love somebody. I certainly don't love Don King, but you have to be able to do business with them.
1: Right. Uh, you know, it's funny because, you you know, I've read any number of uh, law review articles talking about, you know, the the fighters organizing and this and that. But it seems to me. I mean, if, if if you know, there's a perfect world of boxing where you've got you know you're relying on the best set of ratings and the best fight the best and I mean, you see these tournaments now. I mean, they're the it's such you know the super six and the um, this world series of of right. of, of boxing uh, the super series. Yeah, um, it's great. You know, you've got you've got the best. You know, at least most of the best but, fighters. Well you do
2: division. in the cruiserweight division, I think that that division. Which, unfortunately, is not a division which has caught hold in the United States to the extent that it has elsewhere. And there's a long right. story behind that. But that's a terrific tournament in that right. division. I'm not so right. sure that the other one is, is. But it doesn't get a lot of exposure in the United States. None of the crews are right. from right. the United States. Yeah, I think that, that,
1: that would be, like, the biggest impediment is just, you know, Cause I mean, if, if you had, you know, if, if you treated boxing like another sport where you had a schedule and you just took, say, maybe the top four fighters every year and had them do like a mini tournament to determine the number one guy or initially to determine a champion, um, you could probably get a TV deal
2: for the entire sport a pretty big one. <laughs> not so sure. I'm not so sure. Who, you don't, it's, you it's don't a little think bit so. more complicated. You know that you sell it to uh, the Well, I'm not so sure that they would agree. With whom you have in the tournament, you may have some clunkers in there. It's it's a lot harder to sell a fight to TV than you may presume. Right. So, I
1: mean, yeah. It, it depends. Well, I mean, there's a lot of clunkers on TV as it is as we are right now. Right. Um, yeah but I would think if you use the neutral set of ratings like these transnational ratings and you have the top four guys,
2: you know, fighting each other and... Well, just and determining other factors too. Um, if there's a fighter who can... Well, Anthony Joshua, and this may not be the best example, but you saw that he had 80,000 people in Cardiff Arena. You may have a fighter that would fight him... Who would be popular? Let's take Wilder. They're going to paper that house this coming week because yeah, not I'll be there. Tickets? <laughs> they're not going to be selling tickets to it. Uh, that's just promotionally a fact. Wilder may not want to go to England, but that's where the money is. I'm now speaking. I'm not really using Wilder except as an example. Um, and that's true for a lot of fights. I thought that the Showtime was very ambitious when they did the Super Six, which I was involved with on behalf of a particular fighter. Um, but they got it done, which was a major accomplishment. But it took about three times longer than they anticipated due to injuries and complicating factors. It's tough. It's tough. Which is what I said. I remember the day of this fighting. the signing. I should say the day of the press conference. My fighter did sign that day. Um, this is going to be a lot tougher than you think. And it was. Because they're correct. Yes, they got it done.
1: I think the Super Series has... has, has you know, definitely Im- improved upon it. You know, they they don't do it round-robin now. It's just
2: a straight uh, bracketed turning. I think that's the better way to go. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think they've been, to some extent, lucky. I don't think they've had serious injuries.
1: Right, right. No one's gotten injured yet, and they've, they've made it to the semifinals. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean it's just, it's an idea I've batted around just, you know, having spent a little time uh, around Jim Quinn uh at the previous firm I was at because he, you know, he's the Sports Antitrust uh, attorney. Um and just batting around the idea of a boxing league, um uh you know, he said it sounded like a great idea, but again, you you'd have to get like the you know, the, the problems I see is getting the promoters together for one to agree to it. Um, and then, uh, then you know, you have to, you know, with the antitrust issue you would have to yes. deal with. You might have to, you know, I mean, uh, the best it's shot right. at, at making it float is to do what the other leagues
2: did, and that's get a antitrust exemption from yeah. Congress. and the chances of getting an antitrust exemption through Congress at this point are zero. The only person who could possibly spearhead that is uh, John McCain. And he's otherwise occupied.
1: Yeah, and we, you'd
2: have to move pretty quick because he's also not in great health. Oh, so. well, that's one of the other ocu- you know, preoccupations. Because right, I worked right. with him on the Muhammad Ali Act, and I have the... I am not a Republican, but I have the utmost respect for that man.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely.
2: But yeah, interestingly yeah. enough... When he ran for president, that was after the Muhammad Ali Act. I got calls from every reporter, from all the major papers, trying a- 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 to dig up dirt on him in connection with what was his motivation on the Muhammad Ali Act. The only motivation he had was to try and do right by the fighters. Absolutely. Um, amazing yeah. to me the-, the-, the calls that I would get from very reputable news organizations.
1: Yeah, I'm not a Republican either, but in all honesty, if he had gotten the nomination in 2000, I would have voted for him over Gore. just because he's been such an advocate for the sport. I thought he did
2: tremendous work. Tremendous work. When he work. was the nominee, I voted against him, but that's... You know, <laughs> <Same here>. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, but that, that was you know, on he's other policy issues, not, not, not having anything to do with boxing, but he's a great, great guy. Very wow. honest guy. Big difference
1: between two thousand John McCain and two thousand eight John McCain, that's for sure. Yeah, well. <laughs> so let's no. let's bring it to the to the to uh today. Um, you know, Main Events has a new series. Uh, we wanna talk about uh the, the, the new series that you
2: guys are developing right now. Well for that you should be talking to Kathy. Uh, I'm not the <laughs> right person to be doing the the PR type uh puffery that's necessary, <laughs> so I would defer to to kathy on on those types of discussions
1: i got gotcha, I, I got gotcha. you
2: um one last not my place I got gotcha. you one last thing can you tell me about your work
1: for uh Bellator
2: yes um i when Bellator was being formed uh I was asked to represent Bellator uh, by Bjorn Rebney. Uh, Bjorn had been a boxing promoter. We had rubbed up against each other. I, I didn't know him hugely well, uh, but he asked me to represent Bellator, and essentially, uh, I was outside general counsel for Bellator during its formative years. Um. Uh, Bellator, of course, for those who don't know, is an MMA organization, second, they wouldn't like me to say this, but second to the UFC. Um, I did both contract work for them and some very major litigation when the UFC realized they were a threat and basically tried to, I think, wipe them out. Obviously, Bellator still exists, so we, won't, we, we were successful. There Absolutely. came a time. There came a time when Viacom bought out Bjorn Rebney. Uh, Scott Coker is now the head of, of Bellator. Uh, my uh, relationship with him is basically non-existent. Uh, I see. I, so I don't have the same relationship with Bellator. On occasion, I get inquiries from their general counsel about various matters and I help them out when I'm asked to. I got you. I got but you. But unlike unlike under Bjorn, it's not a day-to-day representation.
1: I got you. Okay. Okay.
2: Well, Pat, I really appreciate your time and your patience.
1: I apologize for the uh, technical difficulties, but... Uh,
2: Actually, now that you ending, I can hear you perfectly.
1: <laughs> of, course, <laughs> of course. Of course. Of course. Right? That's that's, that's how it does. but... Uh, Really appreciate your time, uh, Pat, and uh, thanks
2: for uh, speaking to me for the podcast. Right, so It's a pleasure, and uh, I suggest you go get some dinner. All right, <laughs> appreciate it, Pat.
0: So that's it for this episode of the Boxing Esquire podcast. I really want to thank Pat English for his patience uh, with the technical glitches in that interview. And I invite you to check out my website at uh, BoxingEsque, that's B-O-X-I-N-G-E-S-Q dot com the latest in uh, legal and boxing news. Uh, Until next time, thank you very much.